Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Well, hello again, sistren and brethren. Here we are again in Orlando, Florida. That is John Nugent and myself, Frankie V, talking about the things related to the gospel of the kingdom. This is the Insurgents Podcast, and we are going to answer another question that has come to us. And this question, I think, is going to speak to many, many of you who are listening, and if not yourself, people who you know. Because the longer I live, John, the more and more I'm seeing this happen to the Lord's people, to people who are followers of Jesus. And so let me just read it, and we'll have you roll this ball first, and then I'll just uh, make some comments, maybe have some follow-up questions, and add my own thoughts. Sounds great. I have not read your book on the kingdom yet, but I'm having a crisis with my faith. I've been a disciple of Jesus for over 30 years. I've pastored most of that time, and now I'm doubting the Bible, Jesus, God, and the Christian faith. Can you help? Before you weigh into this question, John, uh, I have seen this happen many times. Uh, One case that I can think of is a man who followed the Lord for many years, and he, by every indication, was sold out to Christ, Uh, even sold his home, quit his job, and relocated to be part of a Christian community that was totally given to the Lord and was a major voice in that fellowship even wrote a book and as time went on he ended up becoming a full-fledged atheist utterly denying the faith and not just an atheist but he is now a leader in the atheist movement and writes articles trashing the Christian faith the scripture people who follow Jesus and advocating why atheism makes sense. And one of the things that happened in his own thinking, I I wanna get to that later, but first I want you to address this gentleman's question and then I'll pick up this story and, and tell you what he said, what it was that caused him to really doubt. So why don't we start there? Okay. In response to that specific question, I would, I would definitely want to ask more probing questions. Right. You know, uh, what is it that led you to doubt what you once believed? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we find that uh, they haven't really rejected Jesus. They haven't really rejected the gospel. They may be rejecting their experience of the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so so then you have to talk. I think have a conversation about uh, the brokenness of the church and um, why God would use a broken vessel uh, as his witnesses to his kingdom, and the fact that unfaithfulness is a real possibility in the church. And, and so I would want to be careful that, uh, to understand that what they're rejecting is not the gospel, but they're rejecting uh, people who have really botched their witness. Mm. Um, and, and so I, there are all sorts of reasons people walk away from the faith and stop believing what they used to believe. And then I'd want to share, you know, why is it that I believe? Yeah. You know, what is it that um, after all these years uh, I keep holding on? Uh, seeing the charges that atheists kind of launch against the church and seeing some of the hypocrisy that happens within the church, uh, being exposed to the ugly side of Christianity as it's been manifest in the world and hearing the onslaught of our culture against uh, the bride of Christ. And for me, what has really kind of made a believer out of me Mm -hmm. um, is the 
beautiful story of scripture. I feel like I've been captured by a story that has had the grace to accept me into it and to enfold me into its story uh, and make me a part of it. Uh, the story of scripture is a story unlike any other and um, there are many people who never really wrap their head around the story and maybe never even hear the, the full story. Amen to that. Um, and what they were lured to at their conversion was maybe uh, maybe they were told a story about how your sin separates you from God and unless you get baptized you're going to go to hell and burn forever. Or accept Jesus into your heart. Yeah, so all you have to do is accept him into your heart and everything is good and then just maintain good standing in the church. And that's what they were converted to. And and so later on in life, when things happen and they get unsettled and crises happen in their faith, and it just doesn't seem like um, their faith is bearing a lot of fruit, they start to doubt. And, and so, but for me, it's the story, the full story, and it's the story you tell in the insurgents. It's the story I tell in my book, Endangered Gospel. In my other book, The Politics of Yahweh, um, it's it's a story that you wouldn't think that a human would write. <laughs> when humans write stories, uh, they reflect the values of their society. When humans invent religions, it reflects the kinds of things that people like to do. They wire into their religion, right? And and the classic example of this is Baalism. In ancient Israel, the religion of Baalism wasn't the kind of religion where you create an idol and then bow to it. Uh, Baalism was actually a religion of uh, God manipulation. The Canaanites lived in a land uh, that experienced uh, massive rain shortages year in and year out, famines that drove the people out of the land, and more than anything, the people in that land wanted a God who could ensure that it would rain. And they wanted a God that they could influence to make it rain. And so uh, the religious practices of Baalism um, were to do things that would arouse the gods. And the gods end up being a lot like humans. The gods are sexual beings that have intercourse. And when the gods have intercourse, then it rains. And the way humans can help the gods have intercourse is by arousing the gods through sex and violence. So violent acts like gashing your skin and flopping around on a bed is supposed to arouse the gods who then have intercourse who then make it rain. Or cultic prostitution was a big thing. Go to the cult prostitute, have sacred sex, and the gods see you having sacred sex, and then they get aroused and they make it rain mm -hmm. right here's a, just a classic example where the religion is created by humans that portrays god as being just like humans and that encourages humans to do things that they already want to do mm. which is to do things like sex and to be aroused by things like violence and take vengeance on their enemies and so forth yeah and and so what i found in the bible that that was so compelling to me was the fact that the God portrayed in the Bible is nothing like us. And the things that this God of the Bible asks from us are so different than the things that humans would invent a religion for. Yeah. Uh, so um, the God of Scripture is not like us in that he doesn't need his ego massaged. Mm -hmm. by us just constantly saying things good about him, right? He doesn't need, and uh, the book of Amos makes this clear, God doesn't need our songs uh, to have his divine ego lifted, us singing his praises all the time. Um, he doesn't need our sacrifices. Uh, he doesn't need us to slaughter animals on his behalf. Uh, he doesn't need any of that. Uh, our God, what he has asked of us is to love one another. What he's asked of us is to take care of the poor who are in your community. Make sure that no one needy 
um, lacks a pair of sandals or lacks uh, the bread they need to survive or um, lacks the shelter overhead. It is a faith story in which humans are called to give sacrificially of themselves to other people who don't deserve it. Yes. <laughs> to forgive other people who have wronged us yes. and who may never pay us back right. uh, or be kind to us. To love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, quote unquote. Yeah. Turn the other cheek. Don't defend yourself. Forgive those who despitefully use you. Give and don't expect to be given back to or recompense, right? Everything you're saying, counterintuitive, counterhuman. Absolutely. Yeah, and in, in, in uh, the Old Testament, the fact that when God creates a nation, Israel, before anyone was saying this, God was creating a nation with no slaves. Mm. When every nation around had slaves, God was creating a nation that was to have no slaves. Mm. Uh, he was creating a nation that every seven days gives a day off to man, woman, child, animal, uh, the poorest in the land, and everyone gets a day off. Every seven years, everyone gets the year off of work, even the animals, right, even the children. And so uh, it's, and you don't get to live that lifestyle unless you have a God who is providing for you so much on days one through six and years one through six that you can take that day and that year off. Like It's a religion that needs a God for it to work. And again, that's not the kind of thing that people who want to control society do. Create a religion that depends on the God to show up. Yeah. That's not an ordinary human-made religion. Uh, similarly, when God creates Israel to be a nation, uh, he doesn't, in, in a world that is driven by kingships, where you give all of your allegiance to one man, who is the head of all society and he creates a group around him an elite class a wealthy class uh, an in crowd and and those people are given authority over all the land and that 90 percent of the resources end up in the hands of the 10 percent of the royal elite uh, and the masses are fighting over the scraps the 10 percent that's left over for them to divide uh, God creates a people Israel in which there is no king and there's not even a standing army to protect the borders uh, because God is their king and he is their national defense and he is their national offense and he they don't need to train people for war because God is going to fight for them and win the battles for them. He creates a society where power is distributed among the masses equally. Um, and where if people go into debt and they get into trouble every seven years, clean slate. If people lose their land every uh, 49 years, they get back to their land. That no person in society is to accumulate their neighbor's land and squeeze people out of home ownership and property ownership. Uh, Israel's calendar resets. Debts are wiped out every seven years. Property lines go back to the original every 50, 49 to 50 years. And you see a society that is not built to cater to a wealthy class that would create a religion to endorse their power. And every other religion did that, right? A religion is created to vest all power into the king so that the king can use religion to control the masses. Well, here's a religion where the king is the one held in check. The power bearers are the ones who have to divest themselves of power. It is a religion from the beginning that is a grassroots religion for the people that serves the people. And it divests, it spreads out authority among the people with a balance of powers built into it um, that is unlike any society of its day. Amen to that. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about as you were sharing that, someone could object and say, well, obviously then it could be that the poor and the oppressed created a religion like this, that they're the ones who created the Jewish faith and Christianity. Well, if that was the case, this is my objection to that. Yes. Uh, 
the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, could never have survived. It That's would have right. been wiped out by the people in power. <laughs> That's right. You know, there was no way it would have survived. Yeah, and it couldn't have been written because the poor didn't write. <laughs> That's right. Good point. <laughs> so the poor didn't have the ability to write this. A wealthy person had to write this, and not yeah. only that, but writing was extremely expensive. Yeah, a wealthy person would have had to pay for the writing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's the existence of a religion that is so counter the way humans are in this world is itself a miracle. Yeah. The survival of a religion. Well, when you think about how many different authors are involved in the books of the Bible, how many different voices come together that are all telling this common story. And, and, and throughout history, there have been attempts by those in power different nations and different times to destroy the Bible. Absolutely. And there's a book called The Indestructible Book, which tells the story of all the attempts to wipe out every vestige of the scriptures from the face of the earth. And the very fact that it survived through all of that is a miracle in itself when you read the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, it this story, you know, and I just you know, dabbled in the beginning, right? The founding of Israel to be this nation unlike all the other nations. And it's from this nation that who, uh, from which the Messiah, Jesus, comes. And a Messiah who, who walks the earth and doesn't um, ask for worldly glory. Mm. Uh, he is born from a humble family of modest means. He, build, he surrounds himself with blue-collar workers in Galilee, a podunk town of and little he becomes account. One. And he becomes a blue-collar worker. That's what he was. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's who he surrounded himself with. That's what, who became the core of his followers. Um, those are the ones who carried his message. And his message was consistent. Uh, the kingdom that he brought and the nature of that kingdom is consistent with the kind of people God was forming in the Old Testament. A mm. lowly, humble, modest people who depended upon God alone for their survival. And the teachings of Jesus um, to put others before yourself, uh, to deny yourself uh, riches and greatness in this life um, that is more blessed to give than to receive. Mm that uh, the best way to deal with enmity is by showing acts of kindness uh, and generosity and prayer. Uh, the life to which God calls us, I have found in my own life, has just rung so true. Uh, the more in my own life I've tried to elevate myself and put myself before others, there's this temporary joy followed by misery. Mm lack of fulfillment, frustration. Mm. And when I live the way of Jesus, like all the way, wholeheartedly, fully, uh, I experience joy. Mm. I experience abundant living. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when people ask me, why do you believe? You know, why do you follow? It's, uh, this is a religion unlike any other that no man would invent. Mm. It's just a wonderful, beautiful story. And um, the life it commends, um, when I embrace that life, I experience joy and salvation and mm -hmm. abundance. Mm -hmm. And when I say that I believe, but I act in a way that doesn't really believe, <laughs> I experience frustration and I see things crumble around me. Mm -hmm. And I think the greatest evidence of the truthfulness of Christianity is what happens to those Christians who are hypocrites? Mm. What happens to the Christians when they forsake love for enemy and they replace it with vengeance upon their enemy? Mm. The lowest points for the church throughout history are when they imitated the world and they left behind the way of Christ. Yeah. The highest points for the church when it has thrived the most in joy and love and is when they took the teachings of Jesus the most seriously. I haven't met many people who, when they run into someone who truly imitates Jesus, can't stand to be around that person. Mm. <laughs> it's the Christians who are self-righteous, who are cocky, who are prideful, who think they know it all, who try to force what they know and believe on other people. 
those are the ones who are not following the way of Jesus, who are turning away, unbelievers, right. away Amen, from Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't refute the Bible. It confirms the Bible's message. Mm-hmm. You can't half follow Jesus. When you half follow Jesus, God does not recognize you as one of his own. Mm-hmm. When you fully follow Jesus, you should expect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You should expect the fruit of joy. Um, joy amid suffering. Joy when everything around is crumbling. There is joy and new life. Mm-hmm. And uh, So my walk in this world has been with the believers who fully follow Jesus. What remarkable lives they live. And the ones who have followed Jesus... Oh, what dysfunctional lives they live. Mm. And the ones that don't follow Jesus, they're better off than the second group. I mean, the mm. ones who aren't trying to follow Jesus, <laughs> they've embraced the world, they've rejected the gospel. Those people are better off than the ones who claim to follow Jesus but don't really do it. But even those people, deep within their hearts, I'm talking about the unbelievers, are seeking the good life. Yes. Everybody's seeking the good life, and really at bottom, most people are seeking to be a, quote, good person. And Jesus has given us a way to live the good life and to be a good person. Not in the sense that you're trying to be moral, but in the sense of how God views goodness. You know, I, I think the the opposite of evil is not good, it's life. Yes. Even in the English language, if you take the word evil and you reverse it, it's life. And there's two trees in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then this thing called the tree of life. And consequently, it is only by receiving the life of Jesus through the new birth, regeneration, and living, learning how to live that life, that we become good because God's nature is goodness and we learn what the good life is and so in a sense you know the proof is in the pudding if if you put into practice what Jesus taught including believe in me consume me follow me receive me right you will be able to see if in fact what he has said is true or not will you experience the good life will you experience goodness right and and you have well, you've been a testimony, and you're testifying that, yes, <laughs> that's where the good life is, and that's what, quote-unquote, being good ends up looking like is following Jesus, because only he is goodness, and he is the embodiment of good. Good is a life form. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's the knowledge of good, which is in the heart of every human, I believe. They're seeking to be good, but it's the knowledge of good, and then there's the tree of life. There's the life of God, which is goodness itself. It's a life form, Right. But, but I love how you tell the story. I love how you share and testify that it was the compelling power of the story that caused you to have faith and continues to cause you to believe. Yeah, and you know, the people, there are all sorts of people around me who, who don't live by that story. And I see the fruit in their life. And there are all sorts of Christians who, who claim to be Christians who don't really embrace the story and fold themselves into it the way God has called us to be folded into it. And they live lives that are frustrated. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, this world is so broken. Yeah. And it's all around us. The Christian life should be evaluated uh, by those who, uh, according to uh, the fruit of those who have fully embraced it yeah. and the fruit in their life. Yeah. And all too often people evaluate Christianity by uh, political pundits who wield Christianity as a political tool. Right. It, it's the religion of the religious right or the religious left right. that turns certain people off. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it's uh, the Hollywood religion mm-hmm. or the way TV shows portray religion or Christianity in particular. Uh, it's the way... Uh, people throughout church history who have abandoned the way of Christ and inserted the way of the world and merged it with Christianity that they've rejected. Um, but I want to ask someone, be sure that if you're rejecting Christ, it's the Christ of Scripture. And be sure the the witness that you're rejecting 
is the witness of people who have fully embraced God's kingdom and sought it first the way Jesus have called them to. Make that the thing you evaluate. That's excellent. Uh, and that, that reminds me of the first part of Insurgents where I talk about the gospel of legalism and the gospel of libertinism. And so consequently, if a person is going to look at the Christians who have, who have imbibed the gospel of legalism, what they're going to experience are people who claim to be Christians, and in some cases are true Christians who have been misled, who are legalistic, judgmental, self-righteous, condemning, narrow, cruel, harsh, unloving, right? All of those things are antithetical to Jesus Christ. That's right. right? And then on the other hand, those who have imbibed the gospel of libertinism live just like the world, yet profess to be followers of Jesus. And then you have the accusation, well, these are hypocrites. These are the lukewarm, right, that Jesus talked about in Revelation. So I think that's an excellent point that you make in that when a person points the finger and says, quoting Gandhi, you know, I don't want to be a Christian because of the Christians, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, they aren't really looking at true disciples of Jesus who are fully following him and seeking his kingdom first. Yeah, absolutely. One question I have based on what you said, when you talked about Israel was a nation that didn't have slaves or slavery, what about the Jubilee, which you did mention every 50 years, were not people who were taken into slavery set free? So where did they come from? Yeah, yeah the Bible does talk about, there are certain, and we have to think about slavery first of all, that slavery that is talked about in the Bible um, in the land of Canaan was not the kind of slavery that happened in America where people own people and mistreat people, right? Uh, in the land of Canaan, if Israel were to follow Torah and divide the land among all the, f the 12 tribes and all the families, every piece of property would have a name on it. Mm -hmm. And it belonged to that family name and nothing could take it away. And, and that ensured economic equality. Um, but it happened in Israel that some people uh, were not able to cultivate their land. They were unfit for some reason to care for their own property. Uh, maybe they were born with a physical disability and maybe they didn't give birth to sons. And in that society, if you didn't have a strong body and you didn't have male sons, it was very hard for you to work your land to get a crop. Um, and there would be situations, or perhaps your land, uh, you had limited resources and your land experienced a natural disaster uh, in which the harvest that you worked so hard for was eliminated. And you just didn't have the physical capability to keep it up. You could voluntarily enter into a relationship with someone else where you say I can't take care of my own land and trying to do it even though I get my debts forgiven every seven years it's just a frustrating cycle of I can't do it uh, and you can voluntarily become a servant of your neighbor and, and what that means is you can continue to live on your land but someone else is going to take charge of the crops and the property. Someone else is going to make sure the land is cultivated and the harvest is reaped. And that person is going to reap the profits off of your land. And they will make sure you and your family have enough to live and get by. Mm -hmm. That, a person who says, it would be better for my family if I were to become a servant of my neighbor, which means he's going to own my property and I'm going to get to eat off of it. Uh, my family would be better off to choose that than to frustratingly try to get out from under and we don't have the means to do that. Yeah. And so you can voluntarily enslave yourself, yes. which involves no mistreatment and physical abuse and harsh treatment, right? Mm -hmm. This is someone voluntarily chooses to do that. But even in such case, Torah says, but every jubilee year, every group of seven years, so after 49 years, even someone who has voluntarily enslaved himself, um, his family gets another try. Like the next generation doesn't have to be perpetually enslaved. The next generation can, maybe he has a daughter and his mm. daughter is able to marry a man from another tribe 
then his land, his name goes on the soil, so it's that land stays within the family. And uh, the next generation gets a chance to make it when the previous generation couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one example of how there came to be slavery um, when uh, in, in reality the design was that slavery was not built into the system. Couldn't we then say that the nation of Israel did not have slavery as we know it, but it did have this indentured service? Yeah, that's much closer to what Israel had. Yeah, the by design. We, I mean, Torah does not provide for any other kind of slavery. They didn't have slavery by design. They didn't have slavery as we know it, but they did have this option of indentured servants, which is not the same as slavery on any level, really. Yeah, and there are two exceptions to that. One is um, when Israel was unfaithful. Oh, to Torah, well, when they course. didn't follow the design, <laughs> but they didn't do a lot of things that were in the and design. rich people enslaved poor people yeah. because they weren't following God's design. But that wasn't part of God's yep. plan or will. And a second element is when it comes to aliens. See, because God divided up all the tribes among uh, just the Israelites, so that there would be equality throughout the land. Uh, if someone who wasn't an Israelite. Uh, maybe someone from Moab. There was a great famine, there was a war, or, or the Edomites attacked the Moabites, and people were fleeing from their land for safety, and they fled to Israel. Uh, uh, the Israelites were said, be hospitable. Allow an alien, a refugee from another territory, come to your land and live on your land. But they can't become a property owner mm. because they're not an Israelite, and so their name is not in the genealogy and so they cannot own property. Mm. If an alien wants to live off of the generosity of an Israelite, they too can become an indentured servant. Okay. Um, but on the year of Jubilee, that's it. They can't become a landowner, right? Yeah. They can continue in indentured service. Right? But that's but but this is an example of God making it possible for Israel to be a safe haven yes. to foreigners who are driven from their own land and yeah. want a safe place. And, and it's this that it, the book of Leviticus says to the Israelites, love the alien as yourself. Mm-hmm. Treat them with respect mm-hmm. and dignity. They will never own land. Right. And for that reason, when it's harvest time, don't harvest all your crops. Leave food at the edge of the fields for the aliens, for the widows, for those in society who have less, who can come and pick freely and have enough to eat for their family. Uh, and so those people enter also into the status of indentured servants. Okay. But this is a blessing to them as a refugee who can't own property. Mm. This is not an Egyptian pharaoh enslaving right. the people. Totally different. Uh, kind of servanthood. I love the year of Jubilee. It's when all of the pieces on the Monopoly board go back in the box. Yeah. And you start out at go. What a beautiful testimony of second chances and starting over again. And, and in Luke 4, Jesus, in effect, says, I am the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. I am the Jubilee. Yeah, the kingdom of God is the year of the Lord's favor. Yeah, amen. We live in a state of Jubilee in the kingdom. Awesome. Um, so I'll take a stab at this, too, um, from a different perspective, the question about doubting. Uh, I know in my own life, I have had seasons and periods of doubt, questioning, right? There have been days, John, where I have felt like a practical atheist. (laughs) Where's God? That kind of thing. And for myself, I can look at the resurrection. And it's very hard for me now, I'm talking about it on an intellectual level, It's very hard for me to come up with any other explanation that would contradict the testimony of the Gospels. And and we can spend an hour or two talking about all of the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. Very compelling, very powerful to any reasoning person. And and that certainly is something that I find hugely compelling. But that's on an intellectual level, right? But I have found that even in those days where I have been faced with doubts, questions, that deep within, when you peel the onion back, I still believe. 
And it is so resonant within me that if I wanted to not believe, if I tried not to believe, mm-hmm. I couldn't. There is within, deep within, a belief that he exists, that he is real. And it's not something I can conjure up and talk myself into. I think it's fascinating that the Christians, the disciples of Jesus, were called believers. Why are they called believers? Because they believed. And I, I think a, a person who has the life of God in them, whatever darkness they may go through in their life, whatever periods or seasons of doubt they go through, whatever questions they have or times of trying, there is going to be within them this thing that just doesn't move and irregardless of what reasoning says and the temptations of the mind, etc., there's going to be a faith there somewhere that they can't shake, even if they want to. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what a believer is. What is a believer? It's just somebody who believes. Why do you believe? Well, I can't really explain that. I just believe. And faith is, is seen in, in the scripture as a gift, something that God gives. So I would just say to this person, your doubts are probably all operating on a, on a level of intellectualism, and human reasoning, and you can point, I mean, I can point to many things that go on in the world and in my own life that would give me occasion to doubt. But go deeper and peel back the onion. Do you not have some faith that says, I can't not believe this. There's something in me that tells me he's real and I can't shake that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing I would say, because I do think there is an experiential part of our faith that's hugely important right Mm -hmm. you may not be a person that ever senses god's presence i mean i come from the charismatic world and this is very common for people to use terms like well yeah i felt the presence of the lord i sensed the presence of the lord i was praying and god's presence was so thick i couldn't cut it with a knife there are many many believers john i've met that never had that sense can't really really identify with that yet they believe but they could point to answers to prayer that aren't really well explained by coincidence Right. So so that's another thing I would point to. And finally, coming back to the front where I talked about this individual who was a wholehearted follower of Jesus who ended up becoming an atheist and a, a very zealous one at that. One of the things he pointed to is he said, if Jesus really was who he said he was, the Messiah, the builder of his church, then how is it that throughout 2000 years, We look at the state of Christianity and we look at the state of the church, capital C, and there are so few expressions of the body of Christ that map to what Jesus envisioned and what the apostles envisioned when they were preaching the gospel. So few expressions of the church that were like what we see in the book of Acts. If Jesus is the real person he said he was and he was the builder of his church, How can we make any sense of what we see today in Christianity where most churches, most Christian churches are either dead as a doornail or they operate like businesses and have very few points of contact with Jesus as we see him in the New Testament. And that really troubled this this individual. So I wanted to throw that question at you. (laughs) you, That's a really good question, by the way, folks. I really believe that's a strong question. It's a great question. And uh, I think part of an answer is this is built into the Bible story. It's part of the story that has captured me, that God, I mean, God wants to make faith. He wants to give his kingdom to us as a gift, a gift that we can accept and a gift that we can reject. Mm. And the only way an all-powerful God can give a gift that you can say no to is if he gives it through a messenger that you can say no to, right? Because if God were to show up in your living room and offer you his kingdom, you would say yes out of pure fear and terror of what you've just experienced. Like, this is a miracle that cannot be denied. Here he was in my living room. I have to say yes. Uh, God has chosen to give, to offer his kingdom to us through a broken, lowly people that you can say no to. And because of that, uh, God has also given the gift to his set-apart people in a way that 
they can say no to. God's people can reject God's gift and God's offer. And so we talked about this wonderful design uh, just a few minutes ago, how, how God created this society of economic justice and equality and providing for the poor and the disabled and the alien, right? In and you're land. speaking about the government, right? <laughs> uh, I, I'm talking about Israel's government. Oh, Absolutely. God, no, I was making a joke there. You're um, talking about Israel. And, and God gives them this great vision of this radical economic community uh, of abundance and joy and fellowship and equality. And the Israelites said, God, we don't want to do it that way. We want to have a king like the nations who's going to inscript our sons into the military, take our daughters into the harem, but at least we'll feel secure because the nations around us seem to be secure with their king. Mm. And God says, that's a big mistake. Mm. It's a trap, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to use Star Wars language. Yeah, it sure is. It's a trap. Um, but God says, have it your way. People, people of God, try living just like the nations and see how that goes for you. Mm. And for several hundred years, the Israelites lived for at least 500 years, just like the nations, imitating the way of the nations, without God's blessing on them. Mm. Because God says, if you're going to try it your own way, you're going to do it without me. Mm. And then he allows that project to crumble and fail. And then he welcomes them back to himself. He's like, okay, do you want to do it my way now? Mm. Right? Uh, so part of the story is that God's people are allowed to reject God's plan. Because God offers his kingdom as a gift. And he will always preserve for himself a remnant of people yes. uh, whose heart is his heart. And so you had prophets all throughout the time of the kingship who never let the Israelites forget the vision that God gave him on yeah. Mount Sinai and, and called them back to that vision even mm. when they were being drawn deeper and deeper into the ways of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesus came along and said, you know what? The path I'm given is narrow and not many are going to walk it. And many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these amazing things in your name? And he's going to say, get away from me. I didn't know you. Mm -hmm. So the story itself says God's people can, on a large-scale basis, follow a different way. But yeah. he will always preserve for himself a remnant of people who, who embody his heart in this world. And they will carry that purpose through in world history. And that is true of all of church history. God has always had followers who captured his heart who represented his heart in this world and right now this world is littered with communities like that in america american church has gone closer to kingship like the nations like israel than it has toward christ's vision for his church oh, absolutely brother um, and that's it, been exported all over the world as well but if you've been to some of the third world countries the majority world countries mm -hmm. and you look at the churches there you're going to get a glimpse of God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. This world is filled with communities mm -hmm. who are experiencing the way of Jesus and experiencing new life and joy together in fellowship, not imitating um, yeah. the worldly success that is so alluring in America. Well, that would be mostly poor countries because I know in Europe and more uh, first world, second world countries, the American way has just been poured Absolutely. into those places and the know. state of the church in those places is is sick and dying yeah absolutely because god's power is not in it to yeah. sustain it and yeah. bless it and give it life the image that i have always found most helpful which goes along with what you're talking about and i think it's the answer to this gentleman's objection the occasion for his doubt and his turning is the story of Israel being taken to Babel, Babylon, <laughs> for 70 years and how they planted their roots there, built homes, started businesses, and created the alternative to the temple, which was the synagogue. And so to them, they had the best of both worlds. They were living in the foreign land, right? And they were thriving there, and now they had their worship back. But it was a counterfeit. God never instituted the synagogue. 
it was the temple in Jerusalem, right, which had been decimated. And when the call of God came through the instrumentality of Cyrus the king and Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, which I love their messages to Israel, only a small percentage of the nation of Israel, God's people, were willing to leave their comfortable lives that they had built, their businesses that they have sustained, and return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's a small number compared to what was. Only a small percentage actually were willing to forsake their homes that they had built, their businesses that were thriving, and leave Babylon to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of God. And then when they had rebuilt it, and of course there was a whole story there, as you know, <laughs> which was surrounded by incredible warfare. The glory of that second temple did not compare at all to the first temple. No. So much more that close. the old men wept. The house of God was in ruins. And the glory of the second was not as great as the first. And Zechariah says, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. And I think that that is a parable of church history and where we are in the body of Christ, that most of God's people are living in Babylon and worshiping in the synagogue, which God didn't invent. And only a small remnant left and paid the price to leave Babylon behind and rebuild the temple. And this is the work of restoration that has been going on for a while, but it's a small work and it doesn't have the glory of the first temple as, as it were, but the Lord says, despise not the small things. And in some way, the Lord is getting what he wants. But as you say, it's always been through a remnant. Now, the mistake of some movements has been to say, we are part of that remnant and we are special and we are the ones that really care about what God cares about. And at that moment, those movements end up dying spiritually because the Lord will not have a proud people. An elitist spirit is repugnant to him. So the Lord's remnant, those who truly are part of it, whoever they may be, must always tread with great, great humility else the lights will go out and he'll find another people. Another thing that I wanted to point out re regarding this situation, we talked about uh, some movements and some teachers that are really enamored with going back to the ancient liturgy, right? The old way that church was observed, uh, the service, the mass, going back to the third, fourth century. And because that's so different from the world, right? And so the church needs to be different from the world. And, and I objected and said, well, really, all of that came from paganism, <laughs> Greco-Roman paganism. That was just a replay of what happened in imperial uh, Rome. Yeah. At uh, least some of it. <laughs> well, a yeah. lot of it, actually. Yeah. And uh, just Christianized. And um, what's, what I find interesting, though, about that is that the materials to build the temple, the, to rebuild the temple after Israel had been taken into Babylon. The gold, the silver, it came from Babylon. Mm -hmm. They took the vessels from Babylon and put them into the newly built temple. And I think there's a message there or a parallel. That is, even though institutional Christianity as we know it today is mostly Greco-Roman, or a lot of it is Greco-Roman, borrowed from the pagan world. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from it. That doesn't mean that there are not riches in that system, even though the system is not ordained by God. And you and I agree on this, which makes us radicals. <laughs> even though the institutional church system is not of God as a whole, there are still riches in that system that can be taken and utilized in the rebuilding of God's house. Yeah, and that again echoes what God was doing with Israel in the Old Testament. Even during that 500 year period where they chose kingship like the nations, God did not utterly forsake them. Mm -hmm. He stayed among them 
Mm. He worked among them. He worked through Israel's kings. He tried to convince kings to rely on him and not their military strength. Like, he, even though his people had largely forsaken him, he hung in there with them, even during their period of wide-scale unfaithfulness. And uh, he was guiding them toward um, the time when he would wean them off of the worldly system that they had Mm. taken on and bring them back to his heart and his vision for his set apart people and so it it is that's what gives me great hope that even though the church has had some dark times in embracing the ways of the world god has not utterly forsaken his church Mm -hmm. there's still people within all sorts of denominations who do church all sorts of different ways mm-hmm. that are close to God's heart. Absolutely. And, Amen. Uh, that is a comfort to me. And and one thing I would say, building off of what you said before, that you know the faithful remnant is such a minority among all who profess mm-hmm. the name of Jesus, or at least claim to be Christian. Uh, who says God needs more than that? Mm. You know, his ultimate plan is to... Um, finalize his kingdom and populate it uh, with people uh, who sought first that kingdom in their life. Hmm. And God has, since the time of Jesus, 2,000 years of people to draw from. Hmm. Who says he needs 50% of the population or 70% of the population or even 5% of the population? 1% of the population over 3,000 years might be all God needs Mm -hmm. to populate his new creation Mm -hmm. with the kind of kingdom citizens that he's looking for. Mm -hmm. Uh, So his strategy doesn't require the church to have wide-scale success at converting the wider culture. Uh, It doesn't even require all the people who claim the name Jesus uh, to live it out faithfully. he is acquiring for himself a faithful remnant and he will acquire that remnant (laughs) and if the church doesn't get its act together then like god did with the first generation out of egypt he'll wait till the next generation Mm -hmm. to raise up for himself a people who will enter into the land of promise and so god's going to have his kingdom citizens populate his new heavens and new earth and his offer is do you want to be a part of that if you do, embrace his kingdom today. Mm-hmm. Uh, display it in community with the kingdom brothers and sisters and proclaiming God's offer to the wider world because he wants us to invite others to join us in that kingdom adventure. Amen. Well, I think we will end it there. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the Insurgents has begun. Don't miss it.